Last week, we wrapped up our uh, sermon series called Rhythms. So we were looking at the spiritual disciplines, the habits of Jesus. And this week, we're launching into a brand new sermon series. If you've been around a little while, you know that every fall, we just kind of hit pause. We look at who we are, why we exist, what our purpose is, what our mission is. And so it's kind of like the, the old question of like, man, when God saves us, why doesn't he just teleport us right to heaven? Wouldn't that be nice, right? And uh, the, the reason is because we have a purpose, right? We have a mission on earth. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. Our theme is going to be compelled by love, right, from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. And so we got a great series laid out for you. Uh, now, if you're a part of our church family, just want to let you know we're going to culminate mission month on November 12th. That's a Sunday. And on that day, we take up what we call our send missions offering. All right. So our commitment to you guys, if you're part of our faith family, is we're not going to nickel and dime you for every mission trip or youth camp or whatever like that. The only thing we ask of you is to give consistently and regularly. And then once a year, we all together go above and beyond to fund global missions, local missions, church planting partnerships. So that'll be taking place November 12th. Just want to encourage you, if you're a part of our faith family, if you call new life, your church home, be thinking about, be praying about what the Lord would have you sacrifice for the sake of global mission, right, and church planting. And so I always kind of joke around, how, ma how many pumpkin spice lattes can you give up so the love of Jesus can go forward in Asheville and around the world? And for me, as someone who just despises pumpkin spice, everything, I'm going to sacrifice it all for the sake of the kingdom, okay? And so I'd encourage you to do the same. Be thinking about what you can sacrifice, maybe a pledge that you would make to our missions offering uh, next year. It's going to be a really great time. Well, I'm excited. I've already got, I heard the, the, the sermon already, so this is going to be my second time. But uh, Brody Medford's here. He's the lead pastor of the planter of Gateway out in Waynesville, one of our 10 church plant partnerships. And uh, he's got a great word, a challenging word for us. And so I want to just turn your attention to the screens and, and watch this video. We came to Waynesville because God was doing something and we wanted to be a part of it. And that's McLean's story to a T. I am McLean Youngwood and I attend Gateway Church. Eight months ago, at that point in my life, I wasn't a believer. I had a lot of church hurt and left faith completely. I think I had this idea that I had to be perfect to be a Christian. I wasn't perfect and felt like I wasn't meeting people's standards. McLean was one of the first people that I met when I moved to Waynesville. And I think we instantly kind of clicked as just like having a lot in common. Corey came into the picture and she was somebody who I could be open and honest and vulnerable with about my story. I never really had somebody who just accepted me and looked at me with love and as a friend. I started praying and others who were a part of the launch team started praying specifically for McLean. Meanwhile, like she's been praying that somebody would like come into her life to be a part of that journey with her. So around that same time, I was able to invite McLean to come to our church. I remember the first day I showed up, I left church crying my eyes out because like I had things turning in me. Corey and I start going on walks and having these deep conversations. Corey just loved God so much and she wasn't scared to let him see like the vulnerable side of her. Just hearing how God had transformed her, it just opened my eyes to also realizing how God could do the same for me. 
my life has done a complete 180. I mean, in every sense of the manner. I don't even recognize the person I was a year ago. Today, I feel like I can breathe again. To see your friend go from death to life is hard to put into words. It's one thing to pray a prayer, but then to see it answered is incredible. God was already doing something in McLean's life, but then he brought Corey here and he brought Gateway here. And we're just so thankful that we got to be a part of it. To know that there's joy in the morning and that there's hope tomorrow and that God is rooting for me and that God loves me. I think that's something that has been insane, learning how big that love is. Amen, right? As Chris said, my name is Brody. I'm the pastor of Gateway Church. I'm so grateful to be here this morning. Uh, Chris, you know, he spilled coffee toward his shirt. What I did this morning was uh, I had to move my wife's van out of the way so that I could, I, I could get out of the driveway and come here. Uh, well, I accidentally took both sets of keys to the van, uh, and then my wife did not have a way to get our kids to church this morning, so someone had to come pick her up, and they had to move all the car seats over and do the whole thing, so I'm right there with you, man, right there with you. Um, I've been trying to think of, of you know, so some highlights to give you guys. We, we have now been a, a church, uh, functioning as a church for the last year. We got started last September. Uh, and I was trying to think of maybe some highlights from the last year that I could share with you guys just to give you a bit of an update. And so I think back to Christmas, our Christmas services on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, we meet in an elementary school, so we set up and we tear down every single week. We have these two trailers that we pull over and unload everything and set it up and then put it all back in the trailers and then move it back. So we came to set up, since was, this was going to be a big deal, we came to set up on, uh, sept, uh, on uh, December 23rd, so Christmas Adam. We were setting up for Christmas Eve. Um, some of you get that, some of you don't. That's okay. <clears throat> well, on December 23rd last year, it was like zero degrees outside, and our trailers had frozen shut. And so me and all the guys, you know, I think to, to man's camp this weekend, me and all the guys are like, we're going to get this. We're going to do it. And so we're like, okay, well, we have some tools, so let's just try to beat the ice off of it, you know, as hard as we can. And that way that, that'll get the trailers to open. So we tried that. That didn't work. Um, and then we were like, okay, well, let's go to, you know, Harbor Freight or something, go get some de-icer. Uh, and then that way we'll just spray the whole thing with de-icer, and then that'll get it off. And we tried that. That didn't work. Um, and then someone was like, well... I have a blowtorch. We were like, yes, go get the blowtorch. <clears throat> that didn't work. Uh, and then one of, the, one of the young girls was like, hey, have you guys just tried pouring hot water on there? And we were like, oh, that's not going to work. That'll freeze them. It's zero degrees outside. It's not going to work. Uh, and so an hour later, we poured hot water on it, and it opened. Um, <clears throat> so I think back to that. I think back to this summer, um, this summer I, I pulled into my driveway, I, I have a little Honda Civic, a little stick shift, uh, I got out of the car, I start to walk into my garage, I turn around, I see my Honda Civic rolling away. And so, you know, fight or flight, fight or flight, and I don't know if this was fight or flight, but I decided to take off in a dead sprint, you know, to chase this car, so it didn't hit my neighbor's cars. I get about 10 steps in, and both my hamstrings go. And I fall face first into my neighbor's driveway. I did save the car, okay? 
but I tore both my hamstrings. Uh, I was black and blue back here for weeks afterwards. So that's, you know, this is the life of a church planter. Um, but the best thing from this year was McLean. And you guys got to see her share her story from her own words, just to give you a little update on McLean. Um, she came to our launch service last September. Um, first time she had been back to the church in a very long time. Um, and she, like, as she said, she left in tears because she started to realize that, wait, God, God loves me even where I am. And then so we get, we get to walk with her through that for the next few months. We got to baptize her in February. And then this summer, we got to send her out. She, she started to have this desire again to go back to college. And so we wanted to stoke that fire and say, well, why don't you do what you love for the glory of God, somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And so we got to send her back to Greensboro, to UNC Greensboro, to go and live on mission on campus at UNC Greensboro. Now, if you would have told me a year and a half ago, so our whole vision, our whole mission at Gateway Church is to build people up and send them out, build them up into the image of Jesus Christ and send them out into the world as agents of change. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to be about. If, I, if you would have told me a year and a half ago when I was here that we would got to see the whole thing play out over 12 months, I would have laughed. I would have been like, oh, okay, you know, maybe, hopefully. And God did it. And he did that through partnerships like you guys. You guys are a part of that. This is not a story I'm coming just to share with you to share with you what we have done. I'm sharing with you what God has done through us. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of that. Thank you so much for partnering with us. Thank you so much for sending people and time and effort and energy and resources our way. It matters. It matters a whole lot. We're in Waynesville. You guys are here on purpose for a purpose. On purpose for a purpose. We're here to be witnesses. We're here to testify to the good news of the gospel, both here in Western North Carolina and the A28 and our nation and to the end of the earth. And God has given us the responsibility to carry out that task. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, he said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. You know what excites me? You know what gets me going? We are closer today than we have ever been before. One theologian and preacher from a generation ago once said that if a relatively small minority of God's people took this text seriously and responded to its challenge, we could finish the task of worldwide evangelization in our own generation. And you say, that's impossible. We can't do that. There's so many places without the gospel. There's so many people, uh, places closed to the gospel. Think about Somalia or Sudan. Think about Oman. Think about uh, Afghanistan or North Korea. We can't reach them. And we don't even know what Jesus really means by proclaim throughout the whole world. We, we, we don't know what Jesus means by all nations. What does he mean by that? And then the danger in saying something like that, Brody, if you say that, then you're just going to set a date, which is exactly what Jesus told us not to do. So don't say that we can complete this task in our generation. Let me, let me read you how, how that theologian and preacher would respond. He said, God alone 
knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are. Only God knows the exact meaning of proclaimed. He alone will know when that goal is fulfilled, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. New life. Let us get busy and complete our mission. And let's do so, compelled by love. Open up with me to to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, I met my wife, Maddie, on January 16th, 2012. We were at the Charlotte International Airport. We were getting ready to embark on a four-month semester abroad with our college where we would be traveling with six college students, a teacher's assistant, and a professor all throughout Europe. And I knew from the moment I saw her that she was way out of my league, okay? Guys, you know what I'm talking about. I was out kicking my coverage for sure. There was no way. I said, what do I do? I shake hands with everyone there. I say, hey, my name's Brody. Nice to meet you. Hey, my name's Brody. Nice to meet you. Hey, my name's Brody. Nice to meet you. And then I get to Maddie, and I just give her the cold shoulder. You got to play hard to get, right? <laughs> Why well, I, I fell madly in love with her over the next few months. I, I don't think she fell quite as fast as I did, but she did. And by the summer, we were dating. And now... If you've ever been in a relationship like that, it it comes to a point, it comes to a head, it comes to a moment where where you want to share with that other person how you feel. You want to say those three little words that mean so much. For me, I probably could have said it on January 17th, but that would have been too soon, I would have scared her away. And so when you take that leap, when you say those three little words, it demands a response. If you jump too early, you'll fall to your death or you'll be waiting there like Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. And the silence of that other person will be deafening. But once you say it, that other person has to respond. Do they feel the same way? Do they not feel the same way? Is this going to move the relationship forward? Is this gonna send the relationship to its grave? Well, I was ready, but I was terrified like all good men, right? Ready but terrified. So I wrote her a letter. What else do you do, right? I couldn't say it to her face like it's too, too big of a stake. So I, I wrote a letter. But I couldn't really even like write it out in a letter because even that's too forward, you know? So what did I do? I, I put the stamp upside down. And as all my 65-year-olds know, that's exactly how you tell a girl that you love her. You give her that little hidden message on the envelope that you love her. Everyone under 65 is like, what? Yeah, that's the thing. Go look it up. Well, I did that. I sent it to her, and she didn't even notice. (laughs) She didn't even see it. She probably saw the upside-down stamp and thought, well, this guy can't even write a letter right. He doesn't even know how to address an envelope. But the story turns out well. We, we, uh, on Wednesday, will be married 10 years. We have uh, two daughters, and we have another kid on the way due November 1st. But I'm sure with how life is going, it's going to come early. Here's what I want you to remember from this. There are some things in life that demand a response. When you say, I love you to someone, it demands a response. When you get down on your knee and ask someone to marry you, it demands a response. 
And what we see today in the text is that love demands a response. That's the main idea. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Once you are confronted with the love of Christ, you can't just stand there and do nothing. Because even in doing nothing, you're doing something. You're giving a response. You're a response of apathy. The question becomes then, will you follow or will you leave? Will you obey or will you be disobedient? Will you be compelled by love or will you be repelled by love? So we're going to walk through these two verses today, 14 and 15. We're going to talk about the motivation that Paul has. We're going to talk about the message that Paul shares. And we're going to talk about the mission that we can join Paul in. The motivation, the message, the mission. Let me read verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died, uh, but for the one who died for them and was raised. This is the motivation in verse 14, the motivation for Paul. Paul, Paul gives us this great motivation in our striving for Christ. He says that the love of Christ compels us. He's saying that Christ's love for him and for others is his north star, his, his motivation in the morning. It's the sun that rises in the east. And it's not only does he see it, but by it he sees everything else. What does it mean to be compelled by love? What would that look like in Paul's life here? I think it means at least two things. It means one, one that Christ has captured first place in your heart. One of the craziest things about Paul to me is that he, he never seemed to get over his salvation experience. He never seemed to get over his conversion. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. He planted churches across modern-day Turkey and Greece and Crete and Macedonia and Malta and Italy. He's a pillar of our faith, a, a forefather that we will never not talk about. And in verse 12, if you go back and look in verse 12, he's like, are we commending ourselves to you again? No. We're giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. This motivation. Christ was not just a means to the public proclamation of his ministry. Christ was his all. Christ was everything. He never got over the fact that Christ met him where he was. Once a quarter, we, our little staff, uh, with our two little residents, we, we go out and we have a half day of prayer together. And we try, we, we try to place ourselves in this posture of it's, of it's just you and the Lord. We're not going out to pray about our ministry. We're not here to, to pray or intercede on behalf of our family. We're not here to ask for wisdom or, or discernment and, and choosing what to do next in our future. No, it's just you and the Lord. What will it finally be like when you're standing before the Lord? What will it be like to, to finally realize how lost you actually were? What will it be like to, to see the scars in his hands and in his feet and to realize that it was your sin that put those scars there? I think I understand all of that now, but I, I don't think I 
feel it like Paul felt it. Paul's heart has been captured by Christ's love for him. And that compels him to do all that he does, to wake up in the morning, to get beaten and chased out of town, to take the gospel here and there and everywhere. It compels him to do all that he does and say all that he says. So my question is what has captured your heart? What is it that has wrapped its hands around your heart? Is it a romantic relationship? Is it a passionate hobby? Is it your kid's sports career? Is it a career achievement that you're chasing? Is it monetary success? Or is it the love of Christ? What is the driving force that compels you forward? When, you, when, when the love of Christ compels us, it means that our heart is captured by Christ. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. When the love of Christ compels us, his, his love pours out of you to others. So in 1912, the majestic and unsinkable ship called the Titanic set sail. It was a marvel of engineering, it was a symbol of, of luxury, and it was ready to embark on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City. And passengers from all different walks of life boarded the ship, excited about the grand adventure that awaited them. There, there were wealthy elites enjoying the opulent accommodations that it offered. There were families seeking a new life in America. There were individuals who were just pursuing their dreams of a better future. And I think you know the story. But as the Titanic sailed across the vast and icy North Atlantic, everything seemed okay at first. Everything seemed calm and promising. The ship's crew diligently navigated through the frigid waters, confident that the vessel's advanced safety features would hold true. But that wouldn't last. On that cold and fateful night, the Titanic struck an iceberg. The impact was like a whisper against the colossal structure of the ship and beneath the surface. The iceberg inflicted a fatal wound. Panic ensued as the reality of the situation set in. The, the crew scrambled to deploy lifeboats, but there were not enough for everyone on board. The Titanic, deemed unsinkable, started to sink. And as the ship tilted and plunged into the icy depths, chaos and desperation filled the air. As word made it back to England of what was happening. They set up a gigantic chalkboard in downtown London and they had two columns on it. Lost and saved. When the world looks out, they see lots of different types of people. They see rich and poor, they see powerful and weak, they see educated and blue collar, they see healthy people and they see two torn hamstring people. But Paul, compelled by Christ's love, sees two types of people, lost and saved. When we have been changed by the gospel, the two-column chalkboard becomes crystal clear for us. And the love of Christ compels us to, to share that with others 
to share the same love that we have experienced with others, that, that same love that has filled us up, we pour out for others. Look again at verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. This is the message. Paul, Paul has been compelled to move, to live on mission by the love of Christ. And that love has been poured into Paul and now he wants to pour it out into others. He pours it out by sharing this message with others. In the reality that, that there are two types of people, that there are lost people and saved people, Paul wants people to know what the love of Christ is all about. The way he describes it here is that he wants to help them see that he died for all so that those who live, that he died There's a word that characterizes what Paul is getting at here. Totality. Total. And I mean that in both senses of the word. First, Christ did not give a half measure. He, he didn't just do the bare minimum. He gave all so that some might live. It was the entirety of what he had to offer that he gave away. He gave his life in order that others might not die. I think about courage. Courage is like the epitome of every virtue. It's the highest of every virtue. Because every virtue is just a virtue until the circumstance comes that, that won't let you do that anymore. Think about mercy. You're merciful to someone until a situation comes up that you're like, I can't show them mercy anymore. But courage, courage steps in and allows you to be merciful even when you shouldn't be. Courage is that idea of, of in order to gain my life, I must lose it. Think about if you're in a war situation and you're pinned down by enemy fire. The only chance of your survival is that you risk it in order to get away. Because if you stay hunkered down, you're surely going to die. There's a courage in giving ourselves away. Christ gave everything, the totality of himself. But I also mean total in, in the complete sense. When Christ died, he said, it is finished. It's done. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross is entirely adequate and efficient to accomplish the salvation of mankind. This idea is rooted in the atonement, the, 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 the reconciliation between God and man through Christ's death. Let me show you six ways that this message of totality, that Christ died for us, is such a huge deal. Let me, let me just try to share the weight, the magnitude of what it is. Here's the first thing. Christ died so that you may be redeemed and forgiven. Christ's death is sufficient for your redemption and from the consequences of your sin, it is through his sacrifice that forgiveness and reconciliation with God are made possible. This is what I tell Gateway um, almost weekly. They probably get tired of me saying it, but before you can see the cross of Christ as something done for you, which leads you to faith, you have to see it as something done by you, which leads you to repentance. 
It is because of your sin that Jesus died. Your sin put him there. We can't just breeze by that. Abraham Lincoln once said, you know, if you give me six hours to cut down a, a, a tree, I'm going to spend the first four sharpening my axe. If you give me six hours to preach the gospel, I'm going to spend the first four talking about sin. So let's talk about sin. What is sin? Sin is the deepest, strongest, and most pervasive problem in the human race. In fact, Paul, when he's, when he's writing in the book of Romans, once he has made clear the essence or the root of sin in the first three chapters, he spends the next several chapters showing the magnitude of its power in us. He speaks of sin reigning like a king in death, holding dominion like a lord, enslaving like a slave master, as a force that produces other sins, as a power that seizes the law and kills, as a hostile occupying tenant who dwells in us, and as a law that takes us captive. Sin is not mainly what we do. Sin is who we are. Sin isn't an alien power inside of us. Sin is our preference for anything over God. Sin is our disapproval of God. Sin is our exchange of his glory for other worthless substitutes. Sin is our suppression of his truth. Sin is our heart's hostility to him. It's who we are at the bottom of our heart until Christ. And that total substitutionary death changes everything for us. That's the only way that we can be forgiven and reconciled. Here's the second thing. Christ died to completely satisfy God's justice. Christ's death satisfies the demands of God's justice. It, it provides a complete and perfect payment for sin, which shows that God remains just while also being the justifier. Number three, Christ died to save all types of people. The sufficiency of Christ's death extends to all peoples. It isn't limited to a particular place or a particular culture. It's not limited by the severity or the multitude of your sins, but it's capable of covering the sins of all who turn to him in faith. Total. Number four, Christ died to secure eternity. His sacrifice has eternal consequences. It, it secures for us a relationship with God forever, to be in his presence forever. It provides assurance of salvation and, and the hope of resurrection, of beating death. His death does that, totally. Number five, Christ died so that there would be no need for additional sacrifices. His death is sufficient and it shows that his sacrifice is complete and final. There is no need for additional sacrifices or for our human works or endeavors to contribute to salvation. Christ's work on the cross is perfect and all-encompassing, total. Number six, Christ dying is grace and a gift of God. A total grace, a complete grace, a complete gift it's a gift of God's grace and the sufficiency of Christ's death that he died for us underscores that salvation is not earned. It's not earned through our human merit, but it's received by faith in the finished work of Christ. That's the magnitude of what Paul is saying here. That's the magnitude of the message of that Christ has died for us. But Christ's death isn't scalar. It's, it's a vector. That's for my math nerds in here, okay? 
So scalar, it just has a magnitude. But what does vector have? A magnitude and a direction. Thank you. Thanks, man. You need to come to Gateway because we, we need to have this conversation more. <laughs> magnitude and a direction. So here, here's Paul's message that he's sharing with us. Christ died. That's the magnitude. So that those who live may not live for themselves, but the one who died and was raised. Direction. Here's our application for this week. Join the mission, compelled by love. Join the mission, compelled by love. That's what, that's what we need to do. We need to take a step. Remember, love always demands a response. Even if you do nothing, you're responding. So what should our response be? I think for some of you here today, that means taking a step of faith and believing. Believing for the first time that Christ's love was meant for you. That's what McLean couldn't get over. She couldn't get over the fact that Christ's love was for her. You know the depth of your sin. You, you, you understand how sin has separated you, not only from your family and your friends, but, but from God. You feel like an imposter in your own skin. The, the person in the mirror each morning doesn't even know what's lurking on the inside. You know that. And Christ does too. And yet he still chose to die. God demonstrated his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That love is calling out to you. That love is drawing you in. That love is compelling you to take a step in faith, to believe, to repent, and to be baptized. Don't waste it. Delayed obedience has a name. Disobedience. And who says this isn't the time for you? Why wait another day? For others, for others who, who have taken that step of faith, who believe, who are believers, you're not, you're not cautious about Jesus. You're not curious about Jesus. You are committed. We need to start taking seriously the direction that we're headed. We understand the magnitude. But let us get busy in the direction. When the gospel made it to you, it was on its way to someone else. We are rivers of grace. We're not reservoirs. We're not storing it up for ourselves. We're not a pond. We want to see it pour and flow and move. Christ died so that you may no longer live for yourself but for others. So let me just give you a, a practical way here so that you, you can take that step in the right direction this week. Why don't you join the mission of Love 828? I've been talking with uh, Chris and Rodney this last week and they've been sharing uh, just how many people are committed to doing Love 828. It's amazing. It truly is incredible. It's encouraged me. You know, I kept saying to them, like, do you want me to push for more people? And they're like, I mean, you can, but we got a lot. I was like, that's awesome. What else can I do? How else can I help encourage people in the right direction? Uh, Jesus, 
in John chapter 13, the night that he is betrayed, he gathers together with his disciples, having a Passover meal. And what does he do? He stoops down to watch their dirty, stinky, nasty feet. You know, this is a pre-modern world. This is pre-sewer systems. So sewage just flows down the streets. You're walking in your sandals. It's getting everywhere. And that job was meant for the, the lowest, the, the servant. It wasn't meant for the master. It wasn't meant for the teacher. But he stoops down and he starts washing. He gets to Peter and Peter's like, hey, Lord, don't do this, please. And Jesus is like, I, I have to do this. This is, this is going to make you whole and complete. And Peter's like, well, okay, not just my feet, but my whole body also. And Jesus is like, if your feet are clean, your whole body's clean. And we're like, well, that's not great hygiene. Um, but what Jesus is saying is that his sacrifice is sufficient. It's total. He's pointing to his cross, even in washing someone's feet. His sacrifice is enough. So he gets done washing the disciples' feet. And then he, he shares with them. He says, what, what, the example that you have just seen, go and do to others. Now, you're going to come serve next weekend. Was what Jesus asking and commanding and showing us to do, was as an act of service or was it a heart of service? Because you can fall into the trap of coming next weekend and checking it off the to-do list and saying, I served this year. I did it. I guess I'll see you next year. But what if you use this weekend as a, a, a refueling, a recharging, a reinvigorating, a reorienting, a resetting to help you see that service is not just a thing that you do one weekend every year, but service is an, an act of life. Something that I do week in and week out, something that I do for my family, something that I do for my neighbors, something that I do for my coworkers. What if love 828 extends? I think that's the direction that Jesus is taking us. I think that's the direction of where he wants us to go. He doesn't want us to just be a people that does an act of service. He wants us to be a people with a heart of service, to work that into the rhythms of our everyday life. Let next weekend be that for you guys. One more thing. I think we need to remember the primary direction of our love. So uh, a couple years ago, I got to, to meet with uh, Mr. Sam James. Um, some of you might know the name, he's an author, uh, he, he's a missionary, he spent over 40 years in Vietnam uh, serving overseas. Uh, he, he was in Raleigh-Durham and as he was g getting ready to go out on mission, he had about a year before he ha had to leave and so he's like, what should I do with this time? And so he decided, well, I'll just plant a church in that 12 months. And so he helped plant and organize a church in Raleigh-Durham and then uh, preached the first sermon and then got on a ship and sailed away. And so he served in Vietnam. He was in Saigon during the fall of Saigon. Um, just an incredible man, an incredible journey, an incredible disciple. 
And he was sharing the story of um, one time he, he, he was, <laughs> his house had been broken into and, and all, of, all of his possessions had been stolen. Everything, everything that his family had was just taken. And he was furious, frustrated with God. God, I, I've come here to serve you. I've come here to love these people. And why? Why would you allow this to happen? So he, he gets in a taxi, he, he goes to the police station, he starts to talk to the police and let them know what happened, and they didn't care. So he stops wasting his time, he gets back in the taxi to head back to his house that has nothing in it. And the taxi driver's like, why are you here? <laughs> and so he responded, kind of wrote, you know, as he was supposed to, well, because I, you know, I love these people, because God loves me, you know. And then he says he gets back to his house. He starts reading his Bible. And he, he starts to just be overwhelmed by God. Basically saying that, Sam, you're not here because you love these people. You're here because I love these people. Remember that our love is primarily in this direction. And it is because of that love that it overflows to others. When we try to do it on our own, when we try to do it uh, in our own power and our own strength, we will ultimately fail, we will ultimately give up, we will ultimately run out. But when we remember that we're here for a reason, to love other people because God loves them, it frees us up. Let me pray. God, we're so grateful for you and for your love for us. God, help us never get over the fact that you love us. That despite our sin, despite our shame, you chose to save us. God, you're doing the same thing. You're saving people now. Help us. Help us to follow you in the direction that we need to be going, compelled by love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.